Today we are continuing in our sermon series on the kings of Israel and Judah, and, um, and we're looking at the kings because they had a specific job that we all have as well, but for them it's really put under a spotlight. The kings of Israel and Judah, they were commissioned by God to rule over his people on his behalf, and they had a specific set of rules, they had a specific dominion, a specific area where they were supposed to do it, and, and as we read their stories, that is the focus of the story. For every one of us, we have the same situation, it's just, or the same commission, the lines just aren't quite as clearly defined. But if you think about it, you have responsibilities that God has given you, you have abilities, you have opportunities, you have influences that God has given you, and he saved you so that you could use those abilities, those influences, those responsibilities for his purposes, So every one of us has the same task as the kings of Israel and Judah. We just don't get all the fancy regalia. But we are looking at their stories in order to learn how we can be faithful in the responsibilities God has given us. Last week, we looked at Jehoshaphat, and today we are going to be looking at Joash, which is a very fascinating story and a very dramatic one. I'm surprised it's not a movie yet or a TV show. Like, the kings of Judah would make a, could easily turn into a miniseries or like a, a TV show. There's lots of drama in it. And in this case, it's, it's very fascinating. So last week, we talked about Jehoshaphat and how he made the questionable decision to marry his son, Jehoram, to the daughter of Ahab, the evil king of Israel. And I mentioned last week that this decision was going to have consequences for generations. Ahab is the worst king that Israel had ever had, and, um, and Athaliah, his daughter, carries on that legacy. So what we find out in the, the Jehoshaphat has a whole bunch of other sons, And when Jehoshaphat dies, his son Jehoram becomes king, and the first thing he does is he murders all of them. (laughs) Having a lot of sons is important as a king because the bigger the royal family is, the more stable the nation is because there's more people who can inherit if something bad happens, right? You want your royal family to be big. Uh, But Jehoram did not, so he killed all of his brothers. And then Jehoram has two kids, at least, Ahaziah, a son, and Jehoshaphat, a daughter. Okay? And then Jehoram has a short, uneventful reign. He, died, he has the worst epitaph ever on his tombstone. The Bible itself says he died to no one's regret. How'd you like that to be on your tombstone? Even worse, that to be in Scripture. That's like the only thing, in, but everybody knows about you for centuries, for millennia. So Jehoram dies, and his son Azariah, uh, Ahaziah takes the throne, and his sister marries Jehoiada, the high priest. Okay? This will be relevant. So, so Ahaziah is king, Jehoshaphat, his sister, marries the high priest, and then Ahaziah has kids. We don't know how many, we don't know their names, we just know that the youngest of them was Joash. And it, it should be ominous that we don't know their names or their number right? Because there is a a civil war in Israel, and a guy named Jehu sets the task of killing the entire family of Abraham. Sorry, the entire family of Ahab. And that currently includes the king of Judah, who just so happened to be in Israel at the time. And so he gets caught up in the bloodbath and gets murdered. 
It says, when, Athali- uh, when Athaliah, I can't decide how to say her name, Athaliah, uh, Ahaziah's mother, saw that her son was dead, she proceeded to annihilate all the royal heirs of the house of Judah. Jehoshabeth, which is a different way to, to spell the daughter's name, uh, rescued Joash, son of Ahaziah, from the king's sons who were being killed and put him and the one who nursed him in a bedroom. She was the daughter of King Jehoram and the wife of the priest Jehoiada. Since she was Ahaziah's sister, she hid Joash from Athaliah so that she did not kill him. He was hiding with them in God's temple for six years when Athaliah reigned over the land. So he's one year old at this point. He's a baby. So to go back to our family tree, Athaliah murders all the heirs, her own grandkids, right? She murders them all and seizes the throne. Joash's grandmother seizes the throne, but his aunt, the, the princess who was married to the high priest, protected him. So this is how Joash's reign starts. Now, if you're following the plot of the story, this is a big deal because this is the closest that the line of David ever comes to extinction. And God's promises are now inextricably linked to David's line. So, if you, so in terms of earthly events, taking out the fact that God doesn't fail at anything, but forgetting that for a moment, this is where we see this huge tension where the whole plan that God has for Israel is hanging on the life of this baby who's hiding in the temple, right? And he's only been saved because of the quick thinking of his aunt and his uncle. So he stays in the temple. They're able to hide him for about six years. All the while, Jehoiada, the high priest, is planning. And finally, in the seventh year, he made his move. Jehoiada summoned his courage and took the commanders of hundreds into a covenant with him. So he got the the leaders of the army, into a covenant. They made a circuit throughout Judah. They gathered the Levites from all the cities of Judah and the family heads of Israel, and they came to Jerusalem. I'm sorry, not the leaders of the army, the leaders of the Levites. So he gets the whole priestly family, the whole tribe, mobilized because they're the ones responsible for making sure that that Judah stays loyal to the God of Israel. Then the whole assembly made a covenant with the king in God's temple. Jehoiada said to them, here's the king's son. He will reign just as the Lord promised concerning David's son. So they take this kid and they put him out in front of all the Levites in the temple grounds and they proclaim him king. So Joash's uncle, the high priest, led a rebellion and placed Joash on the throne. Again, he's seven, so Joash is not, is not really planning or doing any of this. They basically waited until it got to the point where it was hard to hide him, and he was capable of saying his lines. And then they brought him out, okay? But Joash is not, is not a full, full-fledged king, right? He's a kid. He's a seven-year-old. So they brought the king's son, they put the crown on him, they gave him the testimony, which probably means the law of Moses, and made him king. Jehoiada and his sons anointed him and cried, long live the king. Then Jehoiada made a covenant between himself, the king, and the people that they would be the Lord's people. So all the people went to the temple of Baal and tore it down. They smashed its altars and images and killed Matan, the priest of Baal, at the altars. All right, so now Joash is king, 
And by the measure that the book of Chronicles measures kings, he's off to a really good start, right? Because this is what this is what the good kings do at the beginning of their reign. It's what Jehoshaphat did. It's what Azza did. You know, you reestablish the worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel. So after a really good start, which is what one would hope because this king was raised by priests. If any king has the training, the preparation to be a law-abiding, righteous king, it's this one. Right? He's raised by his aunt and uncle, the high priest. He's raised on the temple grounds. He's probably got all the services memorized. He's listened to him so many times. Right? So he has been a part of this for seven years, and now he's king, and he's set up with this covenant that they've made, and everything is prepared for him to do really, really well after his seven years as a fugitive. And things do go well, with a slight caveat. Joash was seven years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years in Babylon. His mother, in Jerusalem, where did Babylon come from? His mother's name was Zibiah. She was from Beersheba. Throughout the time of the priest Jehoiada, Joash did what was right in the Lord's sight. So, as long as his uncle Jehoiada lived, Joash ruled well. It's a good thing. But you notice the the condition. You notice that it's, it's not as good as it could have been. There's, there's some kind of limit on this. As long as his uncle Jehoiada lived. Because what happens is that at some point, Jehoiada dies. And it says that after he died, the rulers of Judah came and paid homage to the king. Then the king listened to them, and they abandoned the temple of the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and served the Asherah poles and the idols. So there was wrath against Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. Nevertheless, God sent them prophets to bring them back to the Lord. They admonished them, but the people would not listen. So Jehoiada dies, and the other rulers, the other, other muckety-mucks in the kingdom come and talk to Joash, and they convince him to abandon the God of Israel and worship these other gods. The question is, why did he allow this? Why did he make this shift? And it doesn't really tell us. It tells us that while, when Jehoiada died, Joash listened to new advisors who led him away from God, but it doesn't tell us why. And the Bible doesn't usually tell us what characters are thinking. And we talked about this in the How to Read Your Bible class that we're doing right now, that that is often an invitation for us to speculate about what might fill in that gap. Now, our speculations don't become, don't have the authority of what the Bible says, but what the Bible says often encourages us to think, now, why might a person do that? And as I've been looking at this, the thought that comes to mind for me is the, this is one reason why a person might do this, is he thinks, hey, I've got good training, Right? I, I grew up in the temple. I've listened to my uncle my whole life, and he taught me well. I am ready to handle the reins by myself. So it doesn't really matter who advises me, because I'll know a bad idea when I hear it. Right? So I'll just trust myself to know the difference, and I'll just listen to the people who have the power under me, and I'll know the, the difference. I will know good, good ideas from bad ideas. Sometimes that's what leads us to, to decide to go on our own without 
good advice without good advisors is because you think, oh, I'm self-sufficient. I'll know the right thing to do. If that is the reason why he did that, he was wrong because he chose the wrong way to go. It's also possible that he bowed to political pressure. Maybe there was reasons why his advisors thought it would be easier to worship the gods of their neighbors than to stay true to the God of Israel. And so maybe they're pressuring him to do it. We're not sure exactly why, but we can think about what are the pressures that we face to listen to the wrong advice and then look at Joash's story and see what happens when we do that. So he goes down the wrong path and God sends prophets to call them back and they don't listen to them. And then God chooses a special prophet. It says, the spirit of God enveloped Zechariah, son of Jehoiada, the priest. He stood above the people and said to them, this is what the Lord says. Why are you transgressing the Lord's commands so that you do not prosper? Because you have abandoned the Lord, he has abandoned you. Now, who is Zechariah? He is the son of Jehoiada. What does that make him to Joash? It's his cousin. Right? Because Jehoiada is his uncle. So Zechariah is his cousin. Also, it said that when they made Joash king, he was proclaimed king by Jehoiada and his sons. So this is also one of the guys that's been with him from the very beginning. When he was seven, this guy was standing next to him, proclaiming him king. And they've been going to the same family reunions, eating the same casseroles ever since. Like they are, they, this is not just some guy that came out of the hills, okay? So what happens now after a, after a steady diet of taking bad advice, right? Jehoiada thought, or um, uh, Joash thought that he was impervious to bad advice. Turns out he wasn't. But after listening to enough bad, advi- bad advice, he does become impervious to good advice. Because Zechariah confronts him with the things that he's been taught since he was a little kid. And either because Joash isn't willing to lead the people when they're doing something wrong or because he's in, he's in this with them, Joash becomes partner to a very despicable act. They conspired against Zechariah and stoned him at the king's command in the, temple, in the courtyard of the Lord's temple. So here's the family tree that we've been looking at, and there's one more knife in it. We see Joash starting to act like his uh, northern ancestors. On the temple grounds, no less. So Joash's cousin Zechariah confronted him, and Joash had him assassinated. Just to put an exclamation point on the fact that he hasn't just listened to bad advice, he has embraced bad advice and become a passionate, violent defender of that bad advice. That's the path that Joash has gone down. And in this series, what have we seen God do for people who choose to go down the wrong path? Over and over again, what happens when people go, choose to go down the wrong path, when God has called them to the right path, is he lets them. 
He lets them go where they want to go, and he lets them live in the world that their actions are creating. And Joash's actions are creating a world in which his kingdom prospers based on the advantage that worshiping foreign gods gives him. And he lives in a world where people assassinate their enemies. And can you guess what's going to happen? You could, might be able to write the rest of the story for me, but I will read it to you. At the turn of the year, an Aramean army attacked Joash. They entered Judah and Jerusalem and destroyed all the leaders of the people among them and sent the plunder to the king of Damascus. Those, are the same, those leaders are the same people that talked Joash into following other gods. Although the Aramean army came with only a few men, the Lord handed over a vast army to them because the people of Judah had abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors. So they executed judgment on Joash. When the Aramaeans saw that Joash had many wounds, they left him. His servants conspired against him and killed him in his bed because he had shed the blood of the sons of the priest Jehoiada. Apparently he didn't just kill Zechariah, he killed the others too. So he died and they buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tomb of, tombs of the kings. So as Joash embraces this other path, God allows him to go down that path. And that means that God allowed Judah to be defeated by Aram. In this case, he did actually kind of put his finger on the scales a little bit, right? Like he actually helped a very small Aramean army defeat a big Judean army. And Joash was assassinated by his own officials. Because when a king shows that assassination is a valid political tool, other people are going to use it too. We saw that with David. And this is how Joash's reign ends. Not a great ending. So, as we look at Joash's story, the question is, what do we learn as we seek to live out our place in God's kingdom? And the first thing I want us to hear from this story that I think is really, really important is that no one is self-made. We are dependent on other people and on God. No one is self-made. It is impossible to be self-made. You can start in very basic ways, that you did not teach yourself English. You did not teach yourself to walk. You did not teach yourself how to function in society. We all benefited from the way we were raised. That's one of the reasons why, for me, speculating about original sin is not super necessary, because I just don't see how imperfect people could raise perfect children. We're too dependent on the people that raise us that I don't need to speculate about what the spiritual thing is. I've been a parent long enough to know that I could not raise perfect children, right? So once the first two were messed up, all the ones that come after them are also going to be messed up. Sorry, the first two humans, not my first two kids. <laughs> I meant Adam and Eve, not James and Charlie. But we have this idea that we can be self-made people, that I can go it alone, that I have everything that I need, I can, I can tell right from wrong all the time, I can accomplish what I need to. We have this idea, like the funniest thing to me is when entrepreneurs talk about how, you know, I built my, my business on my own, nobody helped me. Like, well, you know, the, the public roads that your delivery people drove on, those helped you a bit. You know, the, all the infrastructure that we have that make it possible for us to build companies the way we do, that helped some. The employees that did the actual work, that helped some. Like, we, none of us are actually independent of each other. You cannot be. 
That's why you go crazy if you're stranded on a desert island on your own, because that's not how people exist. That's not how we're made to exist. That's not how God wants us to exist. And specifically, that's why God gives us the church, because that's how we're supposed to live, is in community with other people and in connection with other people. And so Paul says, just as the body is one and has many parts, and as the parts of that body, though many are one body, so also with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. Some of us today. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. God has arranged each one of the parts in the body just as he wanted. And if they were all, part of the, all the same part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that are weaker are indispensable. What Paul is saying there, Paul says a lot in that passage, and we often highlight the fact that it means we each have something to contribute to the church, which is true. But he's also saying that you need what everybody else contributes to the church. An eyeball on its own is good for nothing. Right? It's got to be part of a body. So God made us dependent on other people. God has given you gifts, but he hasn't given you all of them. In Genesis 1, it says that we are made in God's image. But the way it's phrased, it's actually, it's not saying I'm made in God's image. It's saying we are made in God's image. Humanity together is made in God's image. We reflect it together. And the head of the body that all of this comes from, that we depend on, is Jesus Christ. So we're dependent on each other and we're dependent on God. And what that means, if we're dependent on each other, it means that what and who we listen to will always shape the way we live. Who speaks into your life, what speaks into your life will always shape the way you live. What goes in here will come out here, guaranteed. Have you ever noticed that in someone, that they start spending time with a particular person and they start picking up their phrases? Or you notice it in yourself? Or you go to a place where there's a common accent and you start to hear that accent come out of your own mouth? It's because you can't help it. We are dependent on other people, and so you will be influenced by what goes into your brain and who goes into your brain. And that's what happened with Joash. That the people around him, the way he ruled reflected what was going into his ears. When Jehoiada was speaking the right thing into his ears, he ruled well. When the other rulers spoke the wrong things into his ears, he ruled poorly. We are not self-sufficient. It's not that you shouldn't be, it's that you aren't. And what you put in here will come out here and it'll come out here. Guaranteed. This is why Paul tells us, Bad company corrupts good morals. You can know exactly the right thing to do and then be influenced constantly to do the wrong thing. And what's going to come out? The wrong thing. This last point, I'm going to point something out that has been rocking my world recently. I've been reading it in a couple of books for my, my project at school. And it makes a point that it... it it is pr pretty provocative. It goes against what we often say. Um, but the Bible tells us that we should treat fellow Christians differently than we treat non-believers. 
It does. Uh, there are passages that say you should love your neighbor, right? Although those are influenced by the Old Testament where your neighbors were fellow Israelites who were part of your belief community. And those are, so it's, that's quoted in the New Testament a few times. But then the command to love members of your church family happens like 30 different times in the New Testament. And the, the way we see those two relationships kind of juxtaposed, you can see really well in this verse from 1 Peter. Honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honor the emperor. Honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul tells the Thessalonians about brotherly love. You don't need me to write to you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In fact, you are doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia, but we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more. That's what he says when he's talking about love. When he talks about the community of believers, he says love. Then later, when he moves to talking about how they relate to the outside world, he says, see to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Love the brotherhood, love the church, do good for all. He does the same thing in Galatians. The whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. See, he's using the love your neighbor as yourself as talking about within their community. But then when he talks about outside their community, he says, let us not get tired of doing good for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Again, love the brotherhood, do good for all. Now, I'm not saying that we're not supposed to love non-believers, okay? Now, let me, let me explain where I'm actually going with this, okay? We are, God loves all people, and we ought to love all people. But the distinction that Paul is making here, and that Peter is making, is that we seeking the good for all people... That is a way of loving them. We want what is genuinely good for all people. We are not selfish for them. We seek the good of our neighbors, right? But the love that we share with the brotherhood is the kind of love where you are actually bound to each other, where you actually take advice from each other, actually do life together. You are committed to going through life together. And that circle is supposed to be your fellow believers, right? That you are supposed to do what is good for all. You are supposed to seek the good of all, but it really matters what goes in your ears. And so Paul assumes, and the New Testament authors assume, that believers are being integrated into a tight-knit family of believers so that they can do life together because what goes in here will come out here. And that's the difference it's the same thing that Paul is talking about when he says, don't be unequally yoked. We use that to talk about marriage most of the time, but he's actually just talking about commitments to other people. Here, that we, if you're going to commit your life to another person, if you're going to do life together, if you're, they're going to be in your inner circle, the question is, what influence are they going to have on you? Here's what I want you to do, because I'm not... I'm not trying to mess your whole life up, although sometimes Jesus does. He totally rearranges our lives, but that's between you and him. Okay, but here's what I want you to think of. Okay, imagine yourself standing in a, a series of circles, okay? And the outside circle are your acquaintances, and then there's a circle that are your friends, 
that you like to spend time with, and then there's a circle. The closest circle is your closest friends, the ones that can tell you things you don't want to hear. Okay? Just imagine those circles. Now I want you to plot in those the people that you worship with. Where do they fit? The people that you follow Jesus with. Where are they distributed in those circles? Because I will tell you that for a good portion of my life, there were practically none in my closest circle. And what's in your closest circle, your circle of advisors, that's what's going to come out here. And that's what's going to come out here. And the way you commit your relationship capital shows your priorities. Right? The way you spend your friendship, the way you spend your time will influence what you do. And so it is important for us to have relationship with our neighbors, with the non-believers that God puts in our life. That is absolutely essential as we share the good news and as we build the kingdom. But what can happen if we, if we don't, aren't also integrated into the church is that we get pulled out instead of pulling others in. You have to have a solid foundation to pull people into, otherwise you'll get pulled out. So to follow God well, we must commit to relationship with God and his people. And this goes against everything that you are taught in every fiber of your being. As modern people, we are taught every day that we want to be independent. We want to be unattached. We want to be able to make our own decisions every moment of the day. And, I, and that's why membership is going out of style, right? People don't join things anymore. People don't commit to things we don't even like to commit to our phone plans anymore, right? Like we just don't commit to things. And you can't do the Christian faith the way God calls us to do it. You can't do it well if you're not committed to others because you cannot do it alone. This is just how we're built and it is how God reaches us. This is why God gives us the church. And this is why Jesus saved the church. Paul in Ephesians will actually say that Jesus reconciles us to each other and then he saves the group. Almost as if saying, you don't get saved individually, you get in on a group deal. Like there's a salvation group on that you get in with, right? Like you, you're part of the church and the church gets saved. That's not the only way the New Testament talks about it, but it really highlights the fact that God calls us to be together and to be committed together and it matters who and what is going into our ears. I'm going to ask you to consider that. And I'm going to ask you to consider what, uh, what that means, what that looks like in your life. I don't want you to say, oh, the preacher told me that I need to go home and unfriend everybody on Facebook. Right? I'm not. But I do want us to hear that it matters who we're connected with. I'm going to ask the praise team to come up as I, as I just make this last kind of appeal that we are seeking to be the kind of tight-knit family, the kind of community that can support each other through the journey of life that God has put us on, that can do faith together. And it's tricky, and it can be hard because it means committing to people who, weren't, who aren't uh, trained in customer service, Right? It means 
committing to people who are as flawed as your own relatives. And you know how hard it is to be in family with them. But as we do it together, as we commit to each other, and as we learn that our brothers and sisters are not going to flake out on us the first time it gets hard, then we can do real ministry together. We can really be changed. We can really be transformed. We can really experience the love of God through other people. And if you want to be a part of that, that's what the gospel invites you to. And so the first thing would be, if you haven't given your life to Jesus, that's where it starts. Because you don't get saved by the church. You don't get saved by friendships with Christians. You get saved by Jesus. And you get, and he works through the other people he is saving in your life. But Jesus is the one who saves us. So today is the best day for you to give your life to Jesus if you haven't done that yet. If you want to do that, you can come forward and talk to me during the final song, or we can talk after the service. If you're online, you can get in contact with the church or a Christian that you know and trust. But don't let this day go past without, take, without answering that call. Maybe you've given your life to Jesus, but you haven't committed to a body of believers. And to me, this is why church membership matters. And, and by the way, when Kendra was baptized and she made her confession, she became a part of our church family. She became a member of the church. And yeah, that means things for who can vote and what office you can hold. But we talked about this before she got baptized. It also means that she's committing to this church family. She's committing to doing church with us, even when we're hard to deal with. Even when the songs are messed up, the slides, and I didn't get them updated the right way, right? And it, but it also means that she's receiving a church family that's committed to her the same way. And so if you are interested in becoming a member and getting more closely connected with this congregation, I'd love you to fill out that Connect card. You can also join one of our small groups, which is how we do life together. We do classes together. We study, we learn, we share our prayer requests. That's what the green card is for. And then we also do life by serving together. And that's what that blue card is for. And so if God is calling you to serve others in some way, to grow, to join the, the church, to commit to the church, whatever he's putting on your heart, Say yes to it now, grab that card, fill it out, and either put it in the box or hand it to me after the service, but don't let the moment pass when God is calling you to take your next step. Amen? I invite you to stand for our final song as we um, consider what God's put on our hearts.